Welcome to Texas Ag Today, a daily look at the latest news in Texas agriculture. Texas Ag Today is produced by the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network with the largest farm news team in the Lone Star State. Now here's the host of Texas Ag Today, Carrie Martin. Hello, Texas. So glad you're with us again for Texas Ag Today. I sure hope you had a great 4th of July weekend, getting to celebrate the fact that we all have the privilege of being a part of this great country of ours. Coming up on today's show, we'll take a look at the weather once again. Man, it has been crazy lately, hasn't it? Out in West Texas in the Panhandle, they've seen some really crazy weather with massive winds over 100 miles an hour in some places, plus huge downfalls of rain. We'll head out to La Mesa to find out what they've seen over the last week to 10 days in their area. My name is Carrie Martin. I'm your host along with the largest and most experienced farm news team in the Lone Star State. And we're all standing by to bring you the latest news in Texas agriculture. From the Piney Woods of East Texas to the Rocky Ranges of the Trans-Pecos and from the Panhandle down to the Rio Grande Valley. Typical July forecast for the state of Texas as meteorologists keep an eye on the aviation forecast. I'm Tom Nicoletti and I'll have that story on Texas Ag today. Pork producers in the Texas High Plains find themselves having to keep an eye on events in California. I'm James Hunt and I'll have that story on Texas Ag today. The Bermuda grass stem maggot is a pest of Bermuda grass hayfields and pastures. The larva or maggot feeds in the top shoots of the Bermuda grass causing the top two to three leaves to turn brown or white. I'm Dr. Vanessa Olson from Overton. We'll have those stories, plus Texas wildlife news and a complete look at the markets all coming up. West Texas and the Panhandle have both seen some crazy weather over the past week. A week ago, the La Mesa area experienced a freakish storm that resulted in 130-mile-per-hour winds and massive rainfall. That's according to Dawson County Extension Agent Gary Richeski. We recorded five inches of rain in 28 minutes uh, there on the mezzanine uh, sector there in La Mesa. Um, and so that uh, occurred there out of the same storm, which uh, is a significant amount of rain for our area at the time. Uh, I don't think we've ever measured that much uh, one time there. And while the rainfall is welcome, it has caused plenty of damage. We're seeing water standing in play lakes that we haven't seen in years. And um, I guess that's a good thing from a standpoint of recharging the aquifer system. But it's a it's a sad standpoint from the standpoint of, uh, you know, significant crop loss uh, flooding out those crops. So uh, we can look at it in two different aspects of it. So, Gary, what have farmers been doing over the past week to 10 days to try to recover from all of this rain and wind? Most of it right now is uh, just trying to get enough time for it to dry up um, so that they can get back into those fields and, you know, especially do some sand fighting and just kind of break that, loosen that ground up a little bit you know, down those rows so that it can get some some heat down in there and kind of start drying out a little bit so it doesn't crust over as well. Uh, and, you know, kind of keep it from blowing once we do. You know, we, we're in West Texas, so, of course, the wind's going to blow at some point in time, um, you know, to try to keep that sand from blowing as much and, and blowing that crop out. Dawson County Extension Agent Gary Richeski. 
Well, the weather has been on everyone's mind here in 2021 as we've faced a lot of weather extremes this year. Tom Nicoletti takes a look back at our June weather and a look forward at July. We go to Fort Worth and meteorologist Tom Bradshaw joins us as he does uh, each month at this time. And uh, Tom, here we are at the beginning of July and there was some rain that uh, some Texans saw the last few days of June uh, leading into uh, the seventh month of the year. So talk about that and how beneficial it was. Sure thing. Good to be with you again, Tom. And yes, you're right. There was the rain uh, during the last full week of the month of June and, and into the last couple of days of June. Look at the majority of the month of June. It was relatively dry across a good part of the uh, state. But as we got into the last part of the, of the month, we started to pick up some tropical moisture out of the Gulf and that precipitated out as a widespread shower and thunderstorm activity across a good part of central and eastern Texas, as well as up in the northwestern parts of the state as well. Now, as we record this interview, you are actually on the forecast desk there at the National Weather Service. What are your responsibilities? responsibilities while manning that desk. Well, that's right. Today I'm covering the aviation desk, which means that I'm issuing aviation forecasts for uh, not only Dallas-Fort Worth uh, Airport and Dallas Love Field, but also several other airports across north-central Texas. So we're forecasting uh, thunderstorm probabilities as well as uh, ceilings and visibility and winds for the next 24 to 36 hours. And that's uh, very useful information for not only the FAA and and ground controllers, but also uh, folks with the airlines who are trying to bring flights into larger uh, airports like DFW and Dallas Love. Now, for the month of July, generally uh, one of the hottest and driest months of the year. So what's the forecast for the state of Texas as uh, the drought monitor shows a, a pretty good map at this point? Yeah, we're lucky. We uh, we got quite a bit of rain back in the month of May, and so that really mitigated a lot of the drought conditions that we had across most of Texas. The only areas that are still hurting way out in far west Texas and down along parts of the Rio Grande Valley. But having said that, we don't really see any big signs of any extensive precipitation across Texas during the month of July, and that's to be expected. We start to dry out quite a bit in the month of July, and we obviously start to heat up quite a bit. So high temperatures will start to climb towards the century mark across a good part of the area. Overnight lows in the mid to upper 70s are approaching 80 in some more of the urban areas. So it looks like that's going to be the case as we go to the month of July. That's not completely unexpected, obviously, for this time of the year, but we would certainly hope that we'll have at least one or two brief cool snaps that'll come during the month of July to kind of help cool things off. That forecast from National Weather Service meteorologist Tom Bradshaw in Fort Worth. I'm Tom Nicoletti with the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network. Pork producers in the Texas High Plains find themselves having to keep up with events in California. James Hunt tells why. The Texas High Plains is known as cattle country, but we also have a large pork presence here as several large farms and related businesses provide thousands of jobs and other benefits to our economy. Anything that could harm the pork business is therefore something we need to pay attention to. And that certainly describes California's Proposition 12. Proposition 12 is a new set of regulations California voters approved three years ago. What it says basically is that anyone who wants to sell pork in California must bring their operations into compliance with California state standards, particularly with regard to animal housing. Brandon Gunn of Texas Pork Producers says it's estimated that currently only 1% of U.S. hog farms meet those regulations. Gunn says the pork industry as a whole will take a big hit if Proposition 12 is allowed to stand. This represents a huge cost, you know, just even when we think about one of the points of Proposition 12 in regards to gestation stalls. 
preparing stalls and whatnot and some of the added space requirements. So we look at the cost of that, you know, converting barns, um, whatnot, millions and millions of dollars. And so this could certainly have an effect where, where we could see smaller farms, you know, and have such an adverse effect on them financially, could drive them out of business and certainly affect everybody negatively from a profitability standpoint. The pork industry and its allies are pursuing court challenges, arguing that Proposition 12 would violate the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution by allowing California to impose regulations on other states. But as of right now, Proposition 12 is scheduled to go into effect on New Year's Day 2022. I'm James Hunt on the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network. We have a lot of Bermuda grass here in Texas, and producers need to keep an eye out for one Bermuda grass pest that's causing some problems this year. Forage specialist Dr. Vanessa Olson explains. The Bermuda grass stem maggot was first reported from Texas in 2013, and since then it has been reported from many areas in East and Central Texas. The Bermuda grass stem maggot is native to South Asia and only infests Bermuda grass and stargrass. The adult stage of the Bermuda grass stem maggot is a small yellow fly which lays its eggs on the stem of the Bermuda grass plant. Once the egg hatches, the maggot moves to the last node on the stem, burrows into the shoot, and consumes the plant material within the stem. The Bermuda grass stem maggot damage resembles frost or disease damage on the Bermuda grass canopy. Upon closer examination, the chlorosis is restricted to the top two to three leaves of each Bermuda grass tiller. The most characteristic sign is the ease at which these leaves can be pulled from the stem, revealing larval feeding damage within. The full-grown maggot is yellowish and about one-eighth of an inch long. Once the maggot completes feeding, it drops to the ground and enters the pupa stage. The adult fly later emerges from the pupa. The life cycle from egg to adult fly requires about three to four weeks, and there are several generations a year. Management recommendations suggest that if damage is found, proceed to harvest the crop as soon as weather conditions allow. Once the damage becomes apparent, the crop is unlikely to add a significant amount of yield. Depending on the time of year and variety, damage can reach 80% yield loss. In Texas, yield loss has been estimated to be 8.9 pounds per acre of Bermuda grass dry matter loss for each percentage of stems with damage. The damaged crop should be cut and baled and removed from the field as soon as weather conditions allow. Leaving the damaged crop in the field will only compete with any attempts by the plant to regrow and decrease the opportunity that the next cutting will have time to accumulate dry matter. Maggots feeding in the stem will die once the crop is cut and dried for harvest. However, flies will emerge from pupa in the soil and reinfest the field. To protect the regrowth from infestation, apply a pyrethroid insecticide about seven days after cutting to kill the adult flies. This is Dr. Vanessa Olson reporting from East Texas with Texas Ag Today. There are plenty of mosquitoes and flies in Texas right now. And if you're like me, you're hoping the bats will eat at least some of those. But how much do they really help? I'm Jessica Domel, and we'll have more on the state's bat population and their benefits coming up. And most horse owners use one of two common dewormers, but there are some concerns over reactions to those products. Texas veterinarian Dr. Bob Judd takes a closer look at that coming up next, right here on Texas Ag Today.
When we moved to Texas, we were like fish out of water. We didn't know anyone in our neighborhood until our Texas Farm Bureau insurance agent came to the house. She was so helpful and reassuring, a friendly face with that Texan hospitality I'd heard about. When we purchased a Texas Farm Bureau insurance policy, we knew we were making the right choice. We knew our family would be protected. Visit Texas Farm Bureau Insurance today at tfbinsurance.com to find an insurance agent who's a true neighbor. Coverage and discounts are subject to qualifications and policy terms and may vary by situation. We're keeping you informed on everything happening in Texas agriculture on Texas Ag Today. The two most commonly used deworming products for horses are Quest and Ivermectin, but there is some concern about reactions after deworming. Veterinarian Dr. Bob Judd takes a look at those concerns. The major concern with equine intestinal parasites is the small strongyle as it produces larvae that insist in the lining of the intestine. This is important because although routine deworming kills the adult worms in the intestine, Quest actually kills these incested larvae, while ivermectin does not. And to decrease parasite numbers and to prevent health issues, the insisted larvae need to be killed. But we've always been concerned about the inflammation that could occur when killing these insisted parasites. A recent study was performed at the University of Kentucky involving 36 healthy horses, and horses were divided into three groups, with one group treated with Quest, one group with ivermectin, and another group not treated at all. Weekly blood samples were collected, and after the experiment, the horses were euthanized, and analysis of their colons revealed the horses treated with Quest that killed the insisted larvae in the intestinal wall actually had less inflammation than horses treated with ivermectin and both had less inflammation than those not treated at all. So it appears killing the assisted larvae in the intestine with Quest actually decreased the response and inflammation compared to the use of ivermectin. However, this study was performed in healthy horses, and we do not know if the inflammation would be decreased with Quest or not in horses suffering from a medical condition, especially if there is GI involvement if the horse is debilitated or has severe disease due to parasites. I think we still have to be careful using Quest in horses that may have severe intestinal parasitic disease. I'm Dr. Bob Judd, and this is the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network. There are plenty of mosquitoes and flies in Texas right now making a great food source for bats. But how much do they actually eat? Jessica Dumel answers that question in today's Wildlife Report. It is baby bat season in Texas, or as the experts call it, bat maternity season. Baby bats, which are called pups, are born this time of year, depending on the species, and will soon learn to fly and leave their roosts. If, like me, you look forward to an increase in bat numbers, hoping that they'll cut down on those pesky mosquitoes, we do have some unfortunate news. People always like to ask you the question about mosquitoes and flies and are bats going to control mosquito populations? And the truth of the matter is that bats don't really eat that many mosquitoes. That's Nate Fuller. He is a bat biologist for the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. Mosquitoes are small, leggy, low energy food source that fly low to the ground and are just difficult for bats to capture. And if they were to capture them, they don't get a lot of energy out of it. What bats do eat a lot of, though, are agricultural pests, big fat moths, big fat beetles, things that are really damaging to our uh, agricultural system. But, you know, bats eat a whole lot of them every night. I mean, there are untold millions of bats in Bracken Cave, and they all go out and eat a bunch of moths that are up in the atmosphere every single night. And they eat a lot of them. So (laughs) while I always hate to say, well, you know, 
they don't eat a lot of mosquitoes. That's just the truth of the matter. People have done the math to calculate that it's not energetically feasible for a bat to live off of mosquitoes. They do provide a big service to us. That was Dr. Nate Fuller, bat biologist for the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. He says there are 34 species of bats in Texas. Only a couple eat nectar or pollen. The overwhelming majority eat bugs. For the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network, I'm Jessica Domel. Well, all of our agricultural markets were closed on Monday for the July 4th holiday, so we'll take a peek back at Friday's markets coming up next. Keep it right here on Texas Ag Today. back looking at another lopsided matchup jim today we have a combine taking on a train yeah that heavy train is about a thousand times heavier than the combine no competition there right especially given that it'll take at least a mile to stop that train that's 18 football fields it's no contest every day people are injured or killed trying to beat a train at rail crossings see tracks think train this message brought to you by operation lifesaver We're giving you the market information you need on Texas Ag Today. Well, as we've already mentioned, no agricultural market trade on Monday for the July 4th holiday. So we'll just take a quick look back at how things wrapped up on Friday. Traders headed home on Friday for the long holiday weekend with live cattle finishing lower, feeder cattle closing higher. Let's start with the live cattle. August down $1.57 at 122 even. The October down $1.17, 128.07. December down 42 cents at 132.77. Higher prices for feeder cattle. August up 72 cents, 157.05. September feeders up 35, 159.42. The October up 40 cents at 161.47. No cash fed cattle trade to talk about. We wrapped up the week's trade with most of the cattle bringing around 122 here in the south. Up north, dress cattle were 198 and higher. Box beef prices lower on Friday. Choice down a dollar eighty-seven, two eighty-five seventy-eight. Select down a dollar twenty-seven at two sixty-five sixty-six. Now let's check the auction barns. We're walking the pens with Larry Marble. Let's head over and talk to Klein Spear from Uvalde, Southwest Livestock Exchange, Uvalde, about the sheep and goat sale. Klein, how did it go? We had 969 head yesterday, Larry. The market was pretty much steady across the board. Some of the lighter kids were about 15 or 20 cents off this week, just kind of going in the holiday and people not wanting to have too many of those on inventory. The light lambs were 260 to 290. The medium lambs were 240 to 270. The heavy lambs were 190 to 240. The stalker nannies were 2 to 3. And the billies were 220 to 260. The fat ewes were 95 to $1.20. And the packard ewes were 80 85 to a dollar. Better, fatter Spanish nannies were at $1.30 to $1.80. And good carbritos were $3.30 to $3.60. And the lightweights were $2.60 to $3.60. So overall, I thought it was a pretty good market. We had a good turnout. And uh, I think next week we'll have a pretty good market too. Everybody be kind of getting the holiday behind them and right. ready to go back to work. We won't have a cattle sale today, Thursday, when you folks are hearing it, correct? Correct. We won't have a cattle sale this Thursday. We'll be back on Tuesday with a sheep and goat sale and back to business as normal. But we'll be uh, receiving livestock if somebody needs to bring some in. Tell everybody how to get a hold of you, Klein. Call us at the office, 830-278-5621, or my cell phone, 830-591-3241. We appreciate you, son. Thank you a bunch. Thank you, Larry. Of course, that's Klein Spear. 
Southwest Livestock Exchange Uvalde. He and his brother, Justin, own and operate it. They sell sheep and goats Tuesday, cattle Thursday. Neighbor, that's it for Walking the Pens, a production of the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network. I'm Larry Marble. I've been your host. Good day. Thanks, Larry. Back over to the futures market where lean hogs closed mixed Friday. July contract up $1.35, 10865. August down seven cents at one hundred dollars twenty-two cents. A mixed close in class three milk with July up three cents, sixteen eighty a hundred weight. August milk down ten at sixteen seventy-four. A nice gain in the cotton market to wrap up the trade on Friday. In fact, uh, we were triple digits higher in all of our nearby contracts. That makes up for the big losses that we had on Wednesday following the acreage report. We actually ended up higher on most of our contracts for the week. Concerns over the weather helping to boost prices. We've gotten big rains out in West Texas in the Panhandle. Also reporting a lot of rain in the Delta. And the southeast is eyeing Hurricane Elsa making its way toward Florida. So all of those factors helping to boost cotton prices on Friday, October up 102 points, 87.51. The December up 107 at 86.97. Corn market finishing lower. The nearby July old crop contract got hit the hardest. It was down 22 and a half, 697 and a quarter. We still have over a dollar spread between that old crop July and the new crop September. September corn down nine and three quarters, five ninety two a bushel. December down nine and a quarter, five seventy nine and three quarters. The wheat market finishing with double digit losses. Harvest pressure continuing to push prices lower, as well as the drop in the corn market. July Kansas City wheat down twenty and a quarter, six eleven and a quarter. July Chicago wheat down twelve and three quarters, six forty-five and three quarters. Rough rice sharply lower. September rice down thirty-two cents, thirteen fourteen a hundredweight. Soybeans slightly higher. November beans up three and a half, thirteen ninety-nine a bushel. July soybean meal down a dollar ninety three seventy nine ninety a ton. In the energy markets, August natural gas up three three sixty nine. August crude oil down a penny seventy five twenty two a barrel. The financial markets were higher. The Dow up one hundred thirty seven points thirty four thousand seven seventy. The Nasdaq up ninety seven at fourteen thousand six nineteen. The S and P up twenty seven points four thousand three forty seven. That wraps up our look at the markets, and that wraps up this edition of Texas Ag Today. Don't forget, we'll be right back here next time to bring you all of the latest news in Texas agriculture. My name's Kerry Martin. See you next time right here on Texas Ag Today. Thanks for listening to Texas Ag Today. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. For more Texas Ag news and information, check out our website at texasfarmbureau.org or dfbradio.com. Texas Ag Today is a production of the Texas Farm Bureau Radio Network.